0: Off to Focus. Had a good time today. Tune in next week, Wednesday, 3 to 5 p.m. It's WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.
1: And the radio is on. And the radio man is speaking. And the radio man says women were a curse. So men go to Paramount studio.
0: And men built Columbia Studios, and built Los Angeles. It is 5 a.m. and you are listening to
1: WCBN, FM, F- Ann Arbor,
0: Radio, Cheese, Alternativa, Monkey, Grassroots, Anarchy, Freeform. Four and five, therefore nine. And nine and nine, therefore eighteen. Eighteen and eighteen, therefore thirty six. Four and five, therefore nine. Four and five, therefore nine. And nine and nine. Living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Will Schwalbe here in the studio with me um, March 9th, 2017. Will, welcome. Thank you, T. I'm so happy
1: to be here. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks for coming down. And and I know you're in town, you'll be reading at Literati. and so people will get a chance to 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 hear you read and talk about books for the for living books for living books for uh, living yeah out with Knopf now, um thanks to Nimra for sending the book and uh, connecting us, um Will thanks also for um not only being here but choosing the songs for today's program oh that was the most fun I was so happy to do that. You, you said it It was like the the best question. Yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't know. I hope it's not all downhill from here because we've already done that one. But so the first song, um, you yeah, tell us a little bit about why you wanted to lead off with this one. The first
1: song, Mbop by Hanson, is my favorite song in the whole world. I just, the first time I heard it, it was pure magic. And for me, it's a very profound song about how in an Mbop, it can all be gone. Everything can be taken away. And it's really about seizing the day. And I love this song so. So much that I wrote into my will that this song is to be played at my funeral.
0: Uh, at and- what point, will? Like, are you like? Do you have it sort of? Because I know, like it's like you maybe think about different songs for different moments, or I'm not a total control freak, so oh, okay. <laughs> this is the
1: only uh, this is the only thing I specified. Everyone else can do whatever they want. In the rest of the thing, but Mbop is to be played at the funeral. That that was my only requirement.
0: And when did you first hear it? Like, what was what's your your origin origin story with it? I my story, uh,
1: I think I heard it when I was traveling somewhere. I think I was in a car. It came on the radio, and it just oh. spoke to me. It's it's a it's a magical song, and it's kind of a theme of Everything I do is is trying to remember that it all can be snatched away at any moment. That uh, it's the carpe diem message. It's uh, it's a classic, but I think Hanson just expresses it perfectly. I don't even know if that's really what the song is about. It's just but what it's I what, think it's about. What it
0: means to you It's what it means yeah. to me. That's, that's, that's what matters. And cause, and I love how you're like, you said now a couple of times, like anything can be either, you know, snatched away at a moment or it can change in a moment. Um, and which sounds almost, um, could be worrying, but you say it with such an upbeat manner. Will yes,
1: <laughs> I do. It, it's um, it's one of the things that allows me to experience joy is because it, it's a matter of not taking for granted what you what you have today. And if the fact that in a can all be gone, better appreciate it now.
0: Yeah, and experience joy, not just like it's like about being in it. Yes, and in, and that's what books for living is also. Books
1: for Living is very much about that. It's it's about twenty six books that found me when I needed the most. Uh, it's about the people who brought me to those books, or how those books brought me to people, and it's about the magical way that books tell you what you need to do in life and help you understand the life you've already lived.
0: And and you find them in the moment when you need them. So these oh. aren't your like. Just to be clear, these aren't your top 26 books of all time are the ones that are like the nearest to you, like on the night table and your nearest bookshelf. But these are exactly. in the moment. In, in the moment. And these are lessons. not the 26
1: greatest books ever written. Uh, a couple of them are. Most of them certainly are not. Uh, nor are they, as you say, it's they're not my 26 favorite books. They're 26 books that offered me wisdom or help in life or gave me an insight. And they're books that I think can do the same for other readers. Some of my favorite books I love, but I couldn't really tell you why I love them. I just love them. And these are books that I think have something really specific to offer.
0: Well, that might be the next book. I mean, if you don't oh, it's presumptuous of me, you probably, probably already have one um, uh, marinating or, or already in the process. But otherwise, it could be books I love. <laughs> it could be books I love. Exactly.
1: And Uh, One of the things that I hope Books for Living will do is inspire other people to come up with their Books for Living and to think about what are the 26 books that they felt found them when they needed the most and have something to offer other people too.
0: And why 26?
1: Uh, One for every two weeks of the year. I wanted it so that if so someone you just
0: could read it, you then. could read it's all like 26 doable. in a year,
1: one every two weeks.
0: Um, before we go any further, Will, um, I'm, I'll read your bio in the back of Books for a Living. Um, Will Schwalbe has worked in publishing digital media as the founder and CEO of Cookstra.com and as a journalist writing for various publications, including the New York Times and the South China Morning Post. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The End of Your Life Book Club, and co-author with David Ship of send why people email so badly and how to do it better um and then if you go to will's website you'll find even more of course right but um i loved um, i actually loved reading your um your about page like about You will. Um, because your voice was so exuberant within this, like, like to begin, I started (laughs) greeting since we are both here. I'm guessing you are probably a fellow book lover. Always great to meet other members of the tribe. Um, and then books have been a constant in my life, like sort of this monster, like it really can see, um, that you believe this. Um, and it's true. I, and then you live in New York City with your husband, David Chang, um, And let's see, we have one African violet. I don't
1: know really
0: lovely moments. You love your neighbor's dog. Oh, we love our neighbor's
1: dog. It's a Havanese. Havanese. (laughs) It's adorable, Ollie. Snap,
0: buy me a coke, (laughs) (laughs) Ollie. But yeah, so you
1: yeah, yeah. Ollie the Havanese is just is the most adorable dog. It just it's and it's great. It's like having a dog, but you don't have any of the responsibility. Just see Ollie in the hallway.
0: You don't have to. Take you don't have to take him the for morning, walks or yeah. pick up
1: anything. No, it, it's, uh, it's great.
0: And, and also on this page, you make clear that you love to meet fellow readers. So, and you're on a pretty. Um pretty like hefty book tour right now it's been going since early january
1: early january 40 cities uh going to great indie bookstores and libraries across the country and it is it's meeting the tribe it's meeting fellow book lovers everywhere and i get so energized by it and everywhere i go i ask everyone my favorite question what are you reading and it's, it's a magical question. It just opens up worlds.
0: And what are some of the, the, the best answers you've been getting uh, This morning
1: on the way from Chicago to the airport, I asked the Uber driver um, what he was reading, uh, and he... Opened up this uh, world of science fiction titles that I didn't know about, and I was scribbling down books like crazy. But he also told me he reread Machiavelli's The Prince every year and The Art of War. And I thought, every year. Every year. I thought, I haven't read The Prince in a while. I need to go back and read The Prince. And then he told me the book that changed his life was Anne Rice's uh, Interview with a Vampire. And it was the most fantastic conversation on the way to the airport. He'd also studied Latin in school. And so he said he was going to think about uh, relearning Latin. And we we had such a big conversation uh, so far beyond the usual conversations. And it was all just opened up by what are you reading?
0: Because it's books are a way of talking about ideas.
1: Books are a way of talking about ideas. And I I feel with the question too, and I, I write this in books for living. It's a way of asking someone, who are you and who are you becoming? Because reading is aspirational. And when we read something, it's to open us up or it's to satisfy our curiosity or to connect us with other people. Uh, So it's a question that's magic. And it's also funny. People, if they're not readers, they don't mind. They tell you, well, I'm not a big reader or I don't have much time to read. And that's okay, too. What do you do, though, Will? What do you do then? Oh, I mean, with the conversation. (laughs) Have you gone anywhere interesting on vacation? Seen any movies? Uh, Do you like to go to art museums? Tell me about your hobbies. You can ask anything (laughs) following that. Uh, But uh, it's extraordinary how what are you reading just can open up worlds and connections between people.
0: Yeah, you can almost see people light up when they're talking about the books that mean something to them or or even things that they're thinking about in that moment, because reading is so intimate.
1: It it really is. And so that's the kind of, in in Books for Living, the kind of stories that I like to share are the the books that prompt stories. So I, I loved writing, for example, about Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And I wrote about our school librarian. I was at an Episcopal boarding school in the 1970s. I was the only student in my knowledge who was gay. There had never been a gay student who was out there nor a gay faculty member. And I had this magical school librarian who just sensed this and she started leaving books on the cart for me. And she left Giamatti's Room by James Baldwin. And I write about how...
0: And, wait, I'm sorry. And how old were you again? It, 16 was, years 16. old. 16, okay.
1: 16 years old in the 70s. And it was a very scary time back then. I mean, it was Anita Bryant had just launched her national hate crusade against LGBT people. Harvey Milk uh, and Mayor Muscone would be assassinated that year. Uh, no gay characters on television who didn't kill themselves or somebody else. And this gift she gave me of leaving Giovanni's room on a cart and helping me imagine a life for myself that was unimaginable. And so that's the kind of connection that I think books make possible. They can they can save lives.
0: And then what was your next step when you had Giovanni's room? Then did you also read all of James Baldwin? You know, is it something like then you were like, now I'm going to have my Baldwin time. And, oh, yes. And you just sort of... Im- like, what happened?
1: Well, that led me to The Fire Next Time and, and a lot of Baldwin. But it also, she left all sorts of other books for me. She left The City and the Pillar by Gore Vidal. Uh, I was reading uh, poetry. It, it She opened up these worlds to me. And then the books took me in different directions. So to read City and the Pillar, Gore Vidal's wonderful early gay novel, is to want to read his historical novels. And to read Baldwin, uh, Giovanni's Room, is to want to read... Uh, the Amen Corner and to explore the rest of his work. And so it enriched my life way more than I can say, um, this connection through a book. And it was a time when I don't think she could have talked to me about that topic that's, then. That's
0: what I was going to ask. Did it open up conversations then? Did you both start talking or was it...
1: Nope. Nope, it didn't. It was... It, I wasn't ready for it. And it was a time, I think, when it would have been very difficult. But the books spoke for themselves.
0: And do you remember her name?
1: Ann Locke, Miss mm. Locke. And I write about in the book how going back for reunions, I would always visit her and... I tried to thank her for what she did for me. Um, I don't think I ever thanked her enough. And Miss Locke died of ALS um, when she was in her early 80s. But she left behind so many students for whom she'd given that same gift.
0: Because it makes you wonder, like imagine who else she was connecting to books
1: as well. Well, I write in the book how one day on the cart was our bodies ourselves, um, yes. the the Bible for uh, women um, in the seventies, and and then I write that I think that was left for somebody else. <laughs> right,
0: <laughs> you didn't pick that one up. I did actually. Yeah, I was...
1: yeah, that I one was not for one. me, <laughs> <laughs> but but I think the others were. I'm pretty sure they were for me.
0: <laughs> oh, that's that's brilliant. But
1: I think that's one of the gifts that books can do. That you can give someone a book that you think will speak to them and help them with uh, connecting in ways that that you might not have otherwise, that might have been presumptuous if you had done it directly on. And and in many ways, this book follows my last, The End of Your Life Book Club, which was about the books I read with my mother when she was dying. Um, And the books we read allowed us to talk about topics that might have been too painful to address directly. Uh, When we read, for example, Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner, we were able to talk about how one character's husband would react and how, what his life would be like after his wife died. Mm. And that was a way of talking about how my father would react and what his life would be like after my mother died. But we didn't have to talk about it head on. We could we could talk about it through fiction.
0: Mm. What's the last book that you gave to someone to read, Will? Uh, so I write
1: in Books for a Living about a poet named John Chardy. Uh, and he had a, a book of poetry that's out of print, but I every time I find a copy, I hoard it called The Little That Is All. And I gave it to a friend on his, his uh, 60th birthday because it's just a beautiful book about the compromises we make and getting older and coming to terms with our lives as as they are and not as we wish they might be.
0: Right, right. And you you also write about um, uh, Lin, Lin Yu-Tang.
1: Oh, Lin well. Yu-Tang. He's, he's the guy I write about more than anybody else in this book. Uh, Lin Yu-Tang in 1938...
0: You know what? Let's let let's I think we need to talk a bit. okay. About we'll talk a bit about living. So Teng. let's take a short break, hear another one of your song picks, and then we'll be back. Today on Living Writers, Will Schwalbe is here. Books for Living on the table. I'm T Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass, and Michelle Pernia um, as our studio audience. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Will Schwalbe is here in the studio, Books for Living, on the table, um, out with Knopf. And um, I think it was, you've been, it was out late December, and then you've been going around the country and um and you've got, what are the next couple of dates? Like, if folks are listening. Um, so, I'm on going out to
1: Grand Rapids after this, uh-huh. and then Austin, Texas, and I'm going to Atlanta, and I'm going to Houston, and San Antonio, and Raleigh, Durham, the next couple.
0: It is, I mean, it's, it's most impressive to be going to these many places, Will, because book tours are different now. But before we get too far away, the song. Tell us a little oh, bit about this, the State song. State of
1: Independence, sung by Donna Summer, produced by Quincy Jones. And there's a chapter in my book uh, about AIDS. And this song brings back my sort of giddy excitement to be out and about in 1982 in Los Angeles. Yeah, in you headed
0: west, headed young west, man.
1: <laughs> headed west, young man, and this crazy group of friends I had who I adored. And it was really the last moment before the plague hit. And I write about this guy who I had a thing with and, and how he was the first person I knew to get sick. Um, and the sort of terror of being a young person and, and really believing with good evidence that you might not see twenty five, but when I hear State of Independence" by Donna Summer, it 's just that last moment, that disco era and and it it fills me with joy and sadness because the joy is is how giddy we were, loving life, and the sadness was knowing what was to come. And the book I write about in reference to that was a book that brought it all back, an extraordinary book called The Gifts of the Body. By
0: Rebecca Brown. Yeah.
1: And it's she had worked as a home health care worker in San Francisco in the early years of the epidemic. And she wrote a novel, which is linked short stories about a home health care worker. And, and I write in, in Books for a Living about how sometimes a book can give you the gift of your past. And I think that, that period, and, and my early years working as a volunteer at Gay Men's Health Crisis, and, and my friends who were dying, it was so awful that I, I had pushed it down. And I, I, I thought about it in one sense, but I didn't engage with it. And reading Rebecca Brown's the Gifts of the Body really allowed me to re-engage with that part of my life, and I write, to forgive myself. And what I needed to forgive myself for was surviving. So uh, that book was a gift, and and the song Donna Summer's "State of Independence" is a gift too.
0: And and you and you must have read the the book um, maybe in early two thousands when it because that came out in like the early two thousands, right? Gifts. Of I only the read
1: it a couple of years ago. Friend Ooh, kept okay. saying, "You have to read this book. You have to read this book." Um,
0: yeah, Rebecca Brown's amazing. She's, she's amazing. Like, you, I'd never read her.
1: I'd never read the book, and uh, I actually read it really. Uh, when I started to write books for living, it's a book I read very recently, but as soon as I read it, I knew I had to write about well,
0: it. Because it did, it became part of, um, not like you were searching for that, but I almost think like the uh, the mission of books for living, like, that, like you said, there's like these different books that find you at different times of your life, and this is the one that can connect you into the past.
1: Absolutely, more. that's exactly right. right. Um, that's, that's the, it's. A book with gifts in the title, and that's the gift that this book gave me, is understanding my past a little better.
0: And this one, and in the structure of the book, it comes quite early, like in within like the first third of the book. Am I remembering this? It's, right? it,
1: it corresponds. The book is a bit of a memoir, and so that corresponds to that time in my life I wanted to write about, those early 20s when the plague hit. Uh, and I write about how it was like some of us were at war. And everybody else around us was at peace
0: one of the, like the the moments that um you kind of turn it into something that could be humorous, but what what I thought was chilling was when you were talking about some of the um volunteer pardon me volunteer work that you needed to do to just even i think oh stave
1: be- off the panic, <laughs> Yes. and I tell a story in the book about how I was working the hotline, and I was on total overload that day. I had spoken to um harrowing echoes of our current time, um, someone who was too terrified to seek medical, effect, uh, medical help because he was undocumented and worried he would be deported. And I spoke that day on the hotline to someone who was in bed with his lover who was dead, and we couldn't find a funeral home uh, to take the body. And I had, we had to keep dialing and dialing till we found someone. And in the midst of all this, the phone rings. And there's a young woman on the other end of the line. And she asked me, How do you get AIDS? Um, And I told her, well, we don't really know, but we think it might be from unprotected sex and it might also be from sharing her needles. Um, And I asked her why. And she said uh, that uh, her hairdresser was gay. And I thought, hmm, I wonder where this is going. Um, And it turned out he had washed her hair and she had gotten herself now convinced. That her gay hairdresser had given her AIDS by washing her hair. And I think I was so overloaded that I started to say to her, okay, I have some advice for you. And I, was, I said, do you have a, a small suitcase and a piece of paper? And my supervisor snatched the phone out of my hands, uh, assuaged her fears, and then said to me, what were you about to say? And I and I told him I said I was about to tell her to write her last will and testament on that piece of paper and pack the suitcase and go right to the emergency room, and so he he banished me from the hotline for the night. He said you need to go home right now.
0: Taking a break, yeah, yeah. But it's and so because it was interesting because as I was reading um, that section, I thought, oh, is this like like another. Like, um, like now it's oh, a, 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 like a woman has it instead because you had been experiencing it with community and dear friends and and um, lovers and um, and then but then when it became about like the like the I don't know I guess it's like the panic that you were talking about was so. So real, and then people being so fearful that then they're gonna—I don't know. Yeah, yeah. anyway, I'm, I'm I was, doing a poor job of. It you've was just trying, already spoken. Well, it was <laughs> such a confusing time,
1: and, and I was trying to bring back too that 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 time when even to have be perceived as being gay was to be perceived as being diseased, and that people wouldn't share a glass of water with you, um, or um, it was it was uh, a time that is so bizarre to think back on because in some ways it was so recent, but it seems like ages and ages ago and, and we never thought it would end. a friend of mine who's a writer wrote a marvelous sentence about the 1980s, um, for, for gay people in the country. He said, uh, the 1980s was like being at a marvelous dinner party, except every now and then one of the guests was taken out and shot. And that's, that's the, I wanted to bring that back as part of this story. And, uh, Part of this idea also about books for living being books that cause you to seize the day. Uh, Because I write a lot about friends I've lost, friends who've died, and what we owe them. And what do we owe all of those people, those hundreds of thousands of people who died? And what we owe them is to be more thoughtful about how we live every day. It's really that simple. Um, That not to be thoughtful about how you live every day, to take this life for granted, is, is an insult to everyone who didn't make it here.
0: It's, it's kind of a human thing to have happen as well, like to take things for granted. But to, you have to combat that. You, you have to have combat to, that. to to practice awareness and, and gratitude.
1: Yeah. And, and a lot of what I write about is much hopes. more frivolous things. I write about how I love to take naps and what, right. a, what a gift <laughs> we, that is. With
0: uh, Murakami. Uh, with Murakami, right, yeah, what
1: I talk yeah. about when I talk about running. And, and that's a sort of, sort of passage about how sometimes you get the oddest message for books <laughs>
0: But they're still totally valid. <laughs> I think you said it was like one paragraph out of the oh, whole yeah. book or something. So or...
1: Murakami, obviously a fabulous contemporary Japanese novelist, and he, he's a fanatic marathon runner. And he wrote this book, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And I am not a runner. Uh, I hate to run. I won't even run for a bus. Um, and I read this book lying in bed, having a nap and reading and napping and reading. And I came across the fact that he loves naps. So for me, what I talk about when I talk about running, napping. Right. Um, but that's part of it, too. And I I, I love writing about the need and reminding myself of the need to slow down. And you had mentioned Lin Yutang. Uh, and there's no book in this that I return to more often than The Importance of Living by Lin Yutang. And Lin wrote this book. It was published in 1938. It was one of the biggest bestsellers in the world. Everyone all over the world was reading The Importance of Living. Um, and it's been almost completely forgotten about since. And it's a book about what Lynn calls the noble art of leaving things undone. I love that. Isn't that great? Yes. And he, he, my favorite Lynn sentence is he says, if you can spend a perfectly useless afternoon doing absolutely nothing, then you've mastered the art of living. And he talks, too, about the three American vices, which are punctuality, efficiency, and ambition. And he thinks that's the cause of all of Americans' unhappiness, those three things. Um, And so it's a book (laughs) with so much wisdom for our times, but it's quite a serious book, too, because, remember, he wrote it in the 30s, and he wrote it with Stalin and Hitler coming to power, and he writes about them by name, and he actually— Is up to something very serious. And he's saying that humanism, reading, taking naps, spending time with your friends, is the antidote to a culture of greed and ambition, which is consuming the world. And he actually has a paragraph that is so chilling in terms of today's uh, events about how a kind of dictator will come to power playing off people's racial bigotry and will incite the worst in our animal natures, And you read this paragraph from 1938, and you just get chills.
0: Yeah. So um, This is the book that you read, because you mentioned your Uber driver returns to the Prince by Machiavelli. Yes. But this is a book
1: that you return to every few years. I return to it again and again, and I visit it, too. I love, I have this concept, I think I stole it from Winston Churchill, (laughs) it's okay, good person to steal from, of visiting books. And what I mean by visiting books is you pull it off your shelf. And you randomly flip open to a page and you read that page and then you put it back. And it's so amazing because so often it will deliver exactly the message you need at the moment you need it, that little visit. Yeah, it's like a dice or something, a roulette wheel.
0: Yeah, the magic eight ball. The
1: magic eight ball, exactly.
0: I had a friend, um, Amy Vanderbeck, who did it for the Confederacy of Dunces. She thought of that. Um, uh, being an atheist, she thought of that as her bible. Like that's what she. <laughs> and she said, like, if I ever need help, I will just open to oh, yeah. a page, and I will find the answer. I have to try that with confederacy Johnson. <laughs> I'm going I'm to give it
1: a shot. But, but my go-to on that is linen. I, I find the craziest passages. There's one I found. Remember, this is the 30s. Um, he writes about the most famous tea house in China. And he writes about how tourists come from all over the world to this tea house, but they're so busy taking pictures of each other drinking tea that they forget to enjoy the tea. And I thought, wow, that's, really, that's any restaurant in Ann Arbor, New York, anywhere, people too busy taking pictures of their food to enjoy their food.
0: It is so today. Yep, it's so today, said. and
1: that's, that's Lynn in the 30s.
0: Um, well, let's, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. We'll talk more. Let's um, Maybe you wouldn't mind reading uh, from Books for Living uh, for us. Great. Well, um, today on Living Writers, Will Schwalbe is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Mm-hmm. Just tuning in. I'm glad you did. You've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel today. Will Schwabe is here in the studio. Books for living. Um, that's what we've been talking about. Um, and ideas, actually, ideas.
1: Ideas T- to the keep books. going. Yes, yeah. absolutely.
0: And and to actually reflect, be thoughtful. And yeah, maybe courageous. Uh, well, one one can try. One can
1: hope. And and uh, yeah, one thing, T, I wanted to add too is that. When I was writing books for living, something that was very important to me was to show that all different kinds of books can be books for living. And I actually don't write about very many self-help books because I think it's pretty obvious what self-help books you need. They, they tell you that in their title. But I love how Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison is a book for living, and that's one I write about. And A Taste of Country Cooking by the great Edna Lewis um, is another book, a cookbook, um, that, that gave me – just pots of wisdom to live my life by. Pots. Pots. Um, Children's books like Wonder by R.J. Palacio. I write about Stuart Little by E.B. White. Uh, And I think I write about thrillers, The Girl on the Train. And- I love right. the fact that any book can be a book that tells you how to live your life um, if you find something in it that's meaningful to you.
0: Because, well, for Girls on the Train, I think it was like this idea of maybe you need to, maybe you're the unreliable narrator. That's exactly
1: right. That's sure. exactly what I enjoyed writing about is, is we're so busy distrusting one another. Um, sometimes we stop and we should consider the fact that we might be the ones who have things wrong that exactly that sometimes we're the, the unreliable narrator. Um, and that's what makes Rachel the narrator of Girl on the Train. So, so terrific is she isn't even sure she can trust herself. And in that respect is someone we should emulate. We shouldn't be so
0: quick to trust ourselves. And so when you read that book, is that like, when did that dawn on you? Uh, that
1: dawned on me right while I was reading it. I, I, as soon as as I started to see that uh, she she drinks and she blacks out and therefore she doesn't trust her own narrative, I thought that's a really powerful lesson.
0: And you were already doing this project,
1: and I was already doing this project. So
0: you were having this lens for the things you were reading. Yes, but
1: that's the way I read anyways. I'm always looking for things. I'm always looking for bits of wisdom. Uh, I write in the introduction to this about the concept of a commonplace book. And people used to keep these, and they would... Commonplace books were blank notebooks where people would write down quotes they liked or the titles of books or Mm -hmm. thoughts. Um, And I think if you're a reader, your mind is a commonplace book. Um, You're constantly collecting things. And I do it sometimes by accident. My mind just... Binds and seizes on things, but oftentimes, but on purpose, I try to add things to my mental collection, um, and I, I I always do that. I've always done that. Looked for little bits of wisdom or thoughts that I can use later.
0: And I think you were saying during the copy editing process of the book, um, one of the the copy editors, the readers said um, about. Why do you say that you're on Mondays and Wednesdays, you're with Maury?
1: (laughs) I I was reading a piece about how when I'm reading and napping, um, which I love to do, I insert myself into the book because I can can dream the book. And so I wrote in the book that uh, because of this dreaming myself into books, I've spent many Mondays and Wednesdays with Maury. And the copy editor wrote, when she returned the manuscript, why don't you spend Tuesdays with More, eh? Um To which the answer, of course, is on Tuesdays he's with Mitch. Right. Yes, but I love dreaming myself into books. Uh, I've been on the Moors with Heathcliff. I've been uh, um, in the land of Pride and Prejudice. You can you can go anywhere. And in fact, the epigraph to the book is a quote from George R. R. Martin, um, which. I found and which I loved. Actually, it was the copy editor or production editor who found it for me. A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies, said Jojen. The man who never reads lives only one. And that's from A Dance with Dragons by George R. R. Martin.
0: And have you, because um, I have not read A Dance with Dragons. Have you read that before?
1: Book? I haven't. No, I've read okay. um, uh, the 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 first, but I haven't gone. I need to go on. I need to continue. But,
0: but it it's an amazing quote. It's an amazing it quote.
1: I, I just as soon as I heard it, I thought, "Wow, he he put it perfectly." That's exactly it. That books allow us to live thousands of lives. And there was a wonderful interview recently the New York Times did with our reader in chief, our former reader in chief, um, President Obama, and about the volume of reading he did while he was president. And he said one of the reasons that he loves to read is it increases his capacity for empathy, that seeing the world through other people's eyes is the most marvelous way to increase your own ability to entertain different viewpoints and different perspectives. And I thought, wow, that's, that's exa- exactly it.
0: Yes, to imagine, to imagine what it would be like. Yeah. And then to feel
1: and for me, reading is radical listening, that when you read a book, you can rant against it all you like, but you can't change the words on the page. And, <laughs> you can and write in the margin. You can that's write in the margin. You can chuck it out the window. You can do all sorts of things, but you can't change the words on the page. So it's not about changing someone's mind. You're not going to change the writer's mind. Right. You just have to entertain thoughts that you might not have had before. And wh- that's something we all need to do more of.
0: It's true, because people, like, I mean, listening is also not something to take for granted. Um, it's like some people are good listeners, but I think it's, you've got to practice it.
1: You've got to practice it. And books force you to listen. They're, they're It's radical listening. And books are great practice for listening. Reading is practice for listening. Reading is listening.
0: Right, right. Um, and so now you've talked about... Um, radical listening, empathy, curiosity. Yes. Um yeah, could you uh, talk a curiosity. little bit more about your curiosity and
1: Well, I'm a curious reader. Um and I and I read with curiosity uh and also with hope. Those are those are my two main uh emotions. And curiosity can take many, many forms. So uh, curiosity is sometimes prompted by the flap copywriter. You'll read on the flap of a book, you know, and then she would then discover something that would change (gasps) her life forever. And you think, gosh, what is the thing that's going to change her life forever? I'm curious. Or maybe you're curious why something got a good review, or you're curious why it got a bad review, or you're curious why a friend loved it and says it's the best book she's ever read. Or you're curious about what an author's first book is like, having loved her second book. Um, There can be a million different kinds of things. Or you find it on a book cart. Or you find it on a book cart, and you're curious why someone would have left it for you, your school librarian. (laughs) Um, Or you just knock it off a shelf, and you're curious as to (laughs) what is that book you just knocked off a shelf. It can be so many things. But I think the true reader is curious, and uh, curiosity is, is one of... The greatest motivations I think that exist it's it's what drives scientists, it's what drives artists um and we can all be we can all be curious it's a, it's a gift that's available to all of us, and then the hope part, because the hope is always that a book is going to do something for you, that it's going to entertain you or distract you or tell you what you need to know or or give you motivation or let you know how to live your life better it, it, I'm always hopeful. Or just hopeful that I'm going to love the book and that it's going to be the book that I can't wait to tell someone else about. Uh, a book recently I just read. I'm mentioning this out of the blue, but Mary Oliver's the extraordinary poet Mary Oliver. Her new book Upstream, and and I read it with curiosity. Huh? These are essays. She's a poet. I wonder what her essays about. But also then the idea too of uh, hope. Uh, what am I going to get from these? Are these going to give me some wisdom? And, and they did. They they just blew me away.
0: Oh, I can't wait to read it. Um, she's also on the back cover of your book, Advanced Praise for Books for Living, Mary Oliver. Yes. I,
1: when I got a blurb from Mary Oliver, I think I jumped up and down um, so much that the neighbors downstairs must have had a heart attack. It was really bad. Um, and Ollie
0: was barking next door. And Ollie was barking
1: next door. The African Violet was swaying. Um, but, yes, she's someone I just – I idolize Mary, Mary Oliver. But the idea of Mary Oliver's essays, uh, and they're about Whitman, and they're about Poe, and they're about nature, and they're about creativity. Um, and so curious, hopeful. Satisfied on both counts.
0: Yeah. And I think curiosity and hope, both of these things are political.
1: Yes, they are political. They're very political. Hope, uh, hope is, I think, one of the great political emotions. Um, and I worry about people who aren't hopeful. Um, it's, it can be a hard emotion and it can be painful um, because sometimes there seems precious little reason for it. Um, but I think the act of creating art is in itself hopeful, even when you create dire art. Um, And uh, coming back to someone like Baldwin, James Baldwin, and his political writing, all his writing was political, so I should just say simply his writing. Um, But to hold up such a frank and stern mirror to the country expresses, at least on some level, hope that we're not irredeemable, um, that that we can change, that we can be better, better versions of our horrible selves.
0: Would you mind, would you mind reading?
1: Oh, I'd love to read. Um, I'd love to read a passage um, where I talk about 1984 by George Orwell. I first read 1984 in 1974. Mm -hmm. I was 12, and the year 1984 seemed impossibly far in the future, as did the idea of ever being 22 years old. The novel fascinated me, even though I had no context for it. To me, it wasn't about fascism and had nothing to do with the Spanish Civil War or any class politics that I could figure out. It was just super creepy. Telescreens and pneumatic tubes bringing history that needed to be rewritten, thought crimes and newspeak, and a secret brotherhood plotting the overthrow of a ruling party that controlled everything. This was cool stuff. The only passages I didn't care for were the lovey ones, when Winston and Julia are together in their little room. I skimmed those. Rereading the book as an adult, those were the passages that most captivated me. And one sentence in particular, Winston became aware of silence as one becomes aware of a new sound. How often do I hear silence? Between the buds in my ears when I'm out and the screens that are on when I'm in, the answer is simple, hardly ever. I miss it. It's hard to remember what it sounds like and all the possibilities it allows. Maybe that's the real tyranny of the smartphones and all the little screens everywhere. They help us rob ourselves of silence.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Will. Like what does, yeah, you know, what does our mind sound like? What does our thinking sound like? Yes, and and that idea
1: Orwell imagined so many things and was so prescient and so many of them come true but what he didn't imagine is that we would spy on ourselves. We don't need telescreens embedded in the walls. We carry them in our pockets. And when we record everything we say and everything we do, and and as Lynn predicted, take pictures of everything we eat and allow it to track us everywhere we go, we're spying on ourselves. And yet, it's so easy to get away from. You just turn off the little machine, leave it by your bedside, and step out of the door without it. And Liberation is that simple. It's right at hand. And I'm not a Luddite. Not even the Luddites were Luddites, um, which I write about. They didn't mind machines. They just didn't want to lose their jobs. Um, I love my little machine, and I'm I'm as addicted to it as the next person. And there's a wonderful phrase a friend of mine has. He says, you write the books you need. So when I'm urging leaving the technology behind for time, for part of the day, I'm, I'm really reminding myself of that. Because I need that message as much as anyone.
0: Um, there's a there's a great program here at the University of Michigan well called NELP, New England Literature Program, where um, in the spring, like for a number of weeks, like uh, eight weeks or so, um, students uh, go to New Hampshire and um, live together, read New England literature, quite obviously from the title, hike mountains, etc., write a journal, read Thoreau, et cetera. Um, but part of the experiment in community is having no technology. So everyone's phones are sort of um, taken out of their... Grasp as soon as they enter the camp, and um, there's no radios, there's no television, and so it's an experiment in community and conversation and ideas. Um, And how did the students respond to that? I I mean, I think some some won't go because that's (laughs) part of the program. I mean, I think, and which I think it's a genuine thing. Like this, it's a there's a feeling of panic of like disconnecting somehow, but. The students who do go love it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's special. It's, it's, it's not uh, always, not the whole time, yep. you know, but I think it's something that then you experience. and It, it is. It's uh, it's
1: just something, again, to be mindful of. The, the the little machines, as I call them, bring miraculous gifts. Um, I was talking about my Uber. I wouldn't have my Uber driver. Uber has, of course, some issues at the moment, but that aside, um, I wouldn't have my Uber without the little machine. But when I get into the car... Time to put away the little machine and talk to the, the person who's driving me and, and not be checking my emails and my texts and doing all of that. There's, there's a person in the car. Let's chat. Right. About books. <laughs> Why not?
0: For example, books for living. For
1: example, books for living. Exactly. Okay,
0: we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. Today on Living Writers, Will Schwalbe is here. I'm T. Hutzel. We'll be back. We've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Will Schwalbe is here. Books for Living um, on the table with us out by Knopf and The Boss. We just heard The Boss. We heard The Boss. Well,
1: first of all. Born to Run, the boss. It doesn't get any better than that, and uh, I sort of jokingly refer to that as my tour theme song because, uh, and it's a joke because what could be more incongruent than comparing myself in my blazer getting in and out of planes to um, the boss on a motorcycle riding across the uh, the plains of New Jersey? And yet, um, it's the image I have of myself. So why not?
0: <laughs> you should do a montage of that of me and, yeah, and the boss. The
1: <laughs> I, I should add that one of the greatest moments in my life. I had a friend who worked at Madison Square Garden, and I never asked him for a favor until the East Street Band and the Boss were playing. And I said, "I want to be so close to Clarence Clemens that I can touch him." And I was that close. And that night was that—that that was a peak night. That was a good one.
0: What year? Do you? What year was it? Well, I can't
1: remember, Around, but it was like uh, it was a while ago because uh, Clarence Clemens yeah. has been gone for a while. But it was epic. There, no one gives a show like the Boss. So. Maybe, that song just my heart is the like racing. The, the listeners can probably hear the, the thumping across the microphone. <laughs> right,
0: there's more bass. There's more bass. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Oh, and yeah, because well, you were born in New York, so I was born in New York. Grew up
1: in Cambridge, Massachusetts, though. Oh, um, wow. And I didn't always. I, I had some appalling taste lapses in in my musical taste. Um, my brother and I had an epic argument that raged for years as to who was the better and more important music. Musician, John Denver or Bob Dylan. And I'm embarrassed to say that I took the John Denver position and stu- uh, clung to it stubbornly until at one point, I think when we were in our teens, I just had to fess up to my brother. It's like, oh, all right, you're right. Bob Dylan is better than John Denver. But that was painful. It's painful to admit to a sibling that you, you're wrong and have been wrong.
0: But at least you did it then. Not like otherwise you would have been getting a call after like the Nobel Prize.
1: Yeah, the literature. Nobel Prize would have right. been. Yeah, I think John, I a- John Denver, may he rest in peace. <laughs> (laughs) Never would have gotten the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, as beautiful as "Country Roads Take Me Home" is, right? right. But the boss, every how could you not love the boss? He's amazing, and also turns out to be a wonderful writer. His book is extraordinary. Um,
0: oh, his biography or or his autobiography, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: fantastic.
0: And so you've you've read it then? Yes, yeah. Oh,
1: it's really it's it's an extraordinary book. Um, that was that was uh, a rare a rare treat to uh, read that. Uh, I love stories. Also, the the portion of people's autobiographies before they make it. I, I find that once people become successful, the stories have a same sameness. But people's struggle to become the person they are. Um, is, is a fascinating thing to read
0: and even the writing about even, it so it's more compelling like the writing of that section is is, is more stronger. is more compelling
1: yeah uh it's uh, he's he's an incredible person um sometimes I read the big bestsellers that everyone's reading like like that um a lot of what I write about too though are I love weird little books that I just happen on. One of the books in Books for Living that was so fun to write about is a book called A Voyage Around My Room, um, also sometimes called A Journey Around My Room, written by a French count um, in 1790 uh, who was living in Italy and was sentenced to 40 days house arrest for dueling. And while he was under this house arrest, he decided to do something crazy, which was write a travel book to his room. (laughs) And he, he treats brilliant. his room. It was brilliant, like a country. And so he writes a guide to visiting his bed or visiting a chest of drawers or visiting a wall or an etching. Um, and it's it's a very whimsical, strange, remarkable little book. But it also has a, a, an emotional punch because at one point he visits the letters that his best friend wrote him. Um And his best friend died in his arms of disease during a campaign. Um, and again, it's on this this theme of of living each day more meaningfully and And from that book, I, I took away how extraordinary the things right around us are, right under our eyes, if only we take the time to appreciate them yeah, um it's, it's
0: It's that idea of being in the present
1: being in the present and being in your surroundings and seeing what's around you.
0: yeah, yeah. Well, and that I feel like that's connecting to Lin Yu Tang as well, um, the, the noble art of leaving things undone. It was making me think of, like, the idea, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but wu-wei, like, the like not doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I think could also be being. Yes. Like not doing, being. There might be different translations. Or
1: Yeah, it, it's, um, it's a wonderful notion. And, and one of the books that I loved writing about, too, was Zen in the Art of Archery. Um, And this was a book that really all of the Zen and the art of or Zen in the art of follow this one book, which was the first book written by a Westerner to try to explain Zen as it's currently practiced to the West. Um, And it's this professor went to German professor went to Japan and seeks out a master to learn archery um, and really learns the concept that you don't let go of the bowstring, the bowstring simply lets go. And he has these beautiful metaphors about how a leaf burdened with snow, the snow doesn't decide to leave the leaf, and the leaf doesn't decide to dunk the snow, drop it. It just happens. Mm -hmm. And that the sort of most beautiful art is spontaneous and effortless. And I wrote about this book in the context of reading, because I sort of refer to the chapter as Zen and the art of reading. For me, what I'm always trying to attain when reading is the state of being so engrossed that I don't even know I'm reading. And that's really Zen and the art of reading. When you and the book become one and the reading is spontaneous and you're totally captivated. And when I read the very best books that captivate me the most, a book like I write about A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, a novel published in the last couple of years that is as good a novel as I've read in the last decade devastating novel about four friends leaving college. One of them has been the victim of horrific childhood abuse. And it's a novel about friendship and about how to be there for people who don't want you there for them and when to push forward and when you're pushed away. And I was so engrossed with that book that I simply forgot I was reading. And for me, that's Zen and the Art of Reading.
0: Yeah, it's some kind of fusion then that's happening. So it is. You're not even aware that it's like an artifact or an artifice of a story. It's just like yeah. in your head or in your body in a different way.
1: Exactly. It just resonates through you. And I think as we go through life in our with our worries and our concerns and our mind working at warp speed... Anything that can give us that feeling of selflessness, of disappearing into something else, whether it's the community or a book or a piece of music, like The Boss and Clarence Clemens, anything that, that gives us that sense is is for me a peak experience mm-hmm. that the experiences I treasure most are the experiences where I disappear.
0: So there's this t- tension then. So what I'm hearing you say, well, because it's like this this disappearance, yet this also um, this need to be aware of the moment and this presence. Yes. Well,
1: I think it's the. And this is not a particularly original thought, but it is the obsessing about the future, and it's obsessing about what you're missing that keeps you from being in the moment. And back to my obsession with and my, unhappiness and unhappiness and going back to to Lin Yutang. When he talked about the American vices, punctuality is so worried about um, being on time the next place that you forget to enjoy where you are. And efficiency is about trying to do things faster than they want or need to be done. And of course, ambition is the thing that always takes you out of the moment, um, because it's about what you want and not what you have. So I'm all with Lynn, and Lynn was very serious in his crazy, frivolous way, because... It really was, he saw as the antidote to fascism and communism and the lust for greed and power. Uh, and and the Lin philosophy is that when we run around uh, obsessed um, with things and forget to live our lives, um, we are emboldening the kind of uh, tyrant or, or demagogue who will use that against us.
0: So it's... You need to be curious with your life.
1: You need to be curious, you need to be thoughtful, you need to be present, and you need to you need to lose yourself from time to time. And losing yourself in a book is the best way I know to lose yourself.
0: I yeah, I mean, it's clear that I feel like you're on a mission, Will.
1: Oh, I am. I, I am on that's I'm so glad you said I am on a mission. And the mission's quite simple. It's we need to be readers now more than ever. We need to engage with each other. We need to meet on the same page. And how do we do that? We say, What are you reading? Um and uh it's it's we need to do this radical listening um, and read all different kinds of books um, of all different genres from all different kinds of people and from people around the world too. We need to read books in translation um, we need to we need to be readers and uh, my mission is with this book was to create a kind of manifesto for readers um, and, and that's what I really consider books for living to be a, a manifesto and and yet it's my manifesto, and I want people to create their own manifestos too. I want everyone to create their own. Every reader should have their own books for a living.
0: And it sounds to me like that's when you're, you're traveling around the country, you're going to these great bookstores and bookshops like Literati here in Ann Arbor. And, you know, you're going in and it sounds like you're ready to hear how people are inspired by books.
1: I am. And I'm so excited about going to Literati because one of the great things that the great indie bookstores do and great libraries do, too, is they bring us together. They give us a community. place. They give, they give us the community. Community places. Yeah. The third place, as one writer wonderfully put it. Um, not the first place where we sleep, not the second place where we work, but the third place where we where we meet, um, ah. where we come together.
0: Who, who? Do you remember the writer? You
1: know, I wish I did. Ah. I have to look that up. It's a great concept.
0: Right, right. And that's like a great bookstore in Seattle.
1: That's what it's named for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The magical third place. Um, and one of the things, too, I... I don't want people to be embarrassed ever. Sometimes people come to me and I say, what are you reading? And they say, oh, I'm sorry, but I'm reading. And they name a popular book. And, and I, I always say, don't apologize. That's great. I'm thrilled you're reading that. Tell me about it. How would you find it? Who gave it to you? Uh, and what does it tell you? And I'm a big fan of literary criticism, but I am not a literary critic. And I do not write about books the way literary critics do. I write about them kind of the way the book club members talk about them. Um, which is how do they intersect with our lives and, and and what what gifts do they give us?
0: And you write about the magic.
1: And the magic, because they are for me magic. They're the most extraordinary things. Then they're my friends. Books are my friends.
0: Thank you, Will Schwalbe. Thank you, um, T. Come back anytime. I would love to. Um, uh, you've been listening to Living Writers today. Will Schwalbe, his, his latest, Books for Living. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Until next time.
1: The fruits of their labor paying off, Absolutely getting a goal. It. And welcome to the Daily Sports Report. It's the top of the, a uh, little past the 6 o'clock hour. It's 6.01 I got here on my clock. You're listening to 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor, your local Freeform station. I'm Dalton Pataki for the sports crew on the other side of the glass. Only Cody with me today. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it work. Yeah, we'll, well two man shows. Uh, you can get a good show.